Hello, this is Brad Schwartz, professor and chairman of Southern Illinois University School of Medicine. On behalf of Richard Wolf Medical, the Endourological Society, and the Journal of Endourology, I would like to welcome you to the latest release in our podcast series. Each month, we will be presenting a current events topic of interest to our listeners. Today, we're going to be talking about benign robotic procedures. Uh, we are uh, very happy to have the uh, guest speakers today. We have Tara Morgan. She's the assistant professor of urology at Duke in Durham, North Carolina. We have Dr. David Duchesne, who's the professor of urology and director of minimally invasive urological surgery at University of Kansas in Kansas City. And we have Dr. Ravi Munver, who is the professor of urology and the vice chair of the Department of Urology at Hackensack Meridian School of Medicine in Hackensack, New Jersey. To all of you, thank you so much. And uh, I'm, I'm really privileged to have uh, all of you here with us today. So we have so much robotics in the world and it always has to do with cancer, prostate cancer and bladder cancer and very little is, uh, is kind of devoted to benign. And I thought it'd be really a good opportunity to get three of you, three experts like you to, to really chime in on, on a bunch of the robotic procedures that we do. Um, I, I kind of formulated this to go maybe top down, maybe cephalad to caudad, if you will. And so I, I just wanted to um, kind of bring up for the audience, um, Dave, uh, what do you do for UPJ obstruction? Maybe, maybe even a little bit like what's your workup? Do you uh, absolutely, uh, is it absolutely mandatory to have a retrograde? Is it uh, all dismembered pyeloplasties? Do you do flaps? Do you stent? Maybe just kind of go through a little bit of your your kind of workup and maybe how you do them. And I can have the others uh, chime in and, and contribute their, their expertise as well. Sure, sure. You know, as at a referral center, you get a lot referred in that have already been, you know, somewhat worked up. But if you get somebody in the ER that has classic symptoms of a UPJ obstruction, and if their pain is fairly well tolerated, you know, I try not to stent them uh, or perk them necessarily beforehand. If it's a classic presentation looks like a UPJ obstruction on CT scan. Uh, I do usually recommend to get a renal scan with Lasix, a nuclear medicine test, you know, just to make sure that kidney works. A lot of times I think you can be fooled on a CT scan, even with contrast. That kidney looks like it has good parenchyma, looks like it takes up contrast, but really does not function well. So I think fixing a dead kidney does not help anybody. Uh, a lot of these patients will have been pre-stented, though, that come from the community, and they will have a retrograde. Again, if it's a classic UPJ and they're pre-stented, I know a lot of people talk about taking the stent out and putting a perk tube in to give some ureteral rest. I tend, you know, just to really keep that stent in, uh, just for patient convenience, really, of not going through a stent removal, perk tube placement, then surgery, especially when they're traveling a lot of times multiple miles to get to Kansas City. And I think you can still see where that stricture area is going to be, where you can do that procedure. And then, uh, you know, really, if they have the symptoms, the renal scan that shows obstruction or a retrograde that shows UPJ, then I really book them for surgery to repair that kidney as long as it works well. And I still tend to do multi-port transperitoneal phyloplasties, um, usually dismembered, uh, you know, sometimes... I'll do a, a non-dismembered pyeloplasty if it's going to be a, a pretty tensioned anastomosis if I try to dismember that and they don't have a crossing vessel, of course. Um, I don't use a spiral flap too much, but obviously that's in the 
in the book if you need to use a, a spiral flap. And for a primary pyloplasty, you know, I don't think there's any really role for using buckle in that setting. You should be able to get a nice anastomosis, tension-free. I actually do still interrupt. I don't run my anastomosis. I interrupt that. Um, I just like how I think it makes it easier to bring the edges together in a nice manner that will be gravity dependent and drain well. And then we did just get the SP robot at KU. I don't have a ton of experience with it, but that is one of the cases that I do do with the SP robot. Um, you know, it's, it's a little bit of a struggle, uh, especially if they're obese, uh, even to do a pyloplasty with the SP robot. But, and I was somewhat of a naysayer, but they do tend to have less pain. I can't fully explain that because that incision's, you know, just as big as the, the three other incisions I'd make with a trans or a multi-port uh, robot, but they do tend to have a little less pain with the single port. So Ravi, um, he mentioned the MAG3 renal scan. What is your bottom line percentage of kidneys that you'll fix versus kidneys you're going to take out? What is that percentage? Is there a, there's certainly not a black and white line that you cross, but is there a range or is there a gestalt that you use? Right. That's a, that's a great question. And it always comes up. Um, and a lot of it depends on the patient's age, really what they're looking to get out of the surgery in terms of saving their kidney versus removing that kidney uh, and how symptomatic they are. Um, so for me, you know, ideally, I think for a young individual, you know, if you've got 20% function or higher, I think that's, you know, my cutoff. Have I done pyeloplasties in patients with renal function under 20% in terms of differential function? The answer is yes, I have. I think in those patients that you know really need that little bit of renal function um, and they may have compromised function on the other side. But um, you know, I think what I tell patients is you really need to have that kidney making urine. And if you're not making urine, you're more likely to have that pyeloplasty fail because if you have a dry anastomosis, those are the ones that tend to really stricture down. So I, I like to see some urine being made. If someone has a perk tube already, you can already gain some information in terms of how much urine they're making in a 24-hour period. But the majority of these patients, you know, as David said, don't have a perk tube in. Some, most of them will have stents in, and it's really difficult for you to ascertain how much urine that kidney's making. So I think, you know, I, I don't have a set rule, but I like to see at two in front, so that 20% or higher, but I have gone as low as 15 and 16%. Anything under 15%, I'm gonna pretty much tell that patient it's really not worth salvaging that kidney. There were a couple of articles, I think just recently or in the last six months that talked about doing pyeloplasties or doing some kind of repair in almost any kidney, like 5%, 7%, 8%. I, of course they reported good results, so they wouldn't have reported it, but I, I, uh, I, I think I kind of feel the same way. Tara, you mentioned interrupted um, versus uh, running. Um, what's your opinion on interrupted versus running? And actually, what kind of suture do you use? Yeah, so I use a 4-0 um, suture. I use a vicral suture. Uh, and I do run uh, posteriorly. I do a, a running stitch posteriorly and then run the put the stent in and then run up the anteriorly. Um, I, I've seen it done both ways, but have found that that's probably uh, the fastest, um, especially with the trainees. They tend to, um, it takes a little more time to sew each, each stitch individually. And so I've, I've gotten into the habit now of, of, just, of just running it. 
And uh, Ravi, is there a, you do PBS or V-Lock or anything like that? The, you know, the, the barb sutures at all? So for pyeloplasties, um, you know, I do not like using barb sutures. I use monofilament sutures, so I use a monocryl. Um, you know, when I was doing them laparoscopically and interrupted at the time, I was using vicosutures. I think the vicosutures held a little bit better uh, and they didn't slip. But once I started doing these robotically over, you know, two decades ago, I immediately switched to a monofilament suture. And I do the same way that, uh, that Tara does in terms of, I, I actually place one vicral stitch, usually a 3 um, at the apex. And that just sort of brings the edge together. And then I run one edge with a 4 um, monofilament suture, a mono, monocryl suture. And then I run the anterior with another uh, 4 monocryl suture. And uh, Dave, coming back to you, when, when we do these, are you doing a true excision of the stricture or are you cutting the renal pelvis and incising through the stricture and then kind of using that ureteral kind of, there's a kind of this flap of pelvis on top of the ureter and you're using that as a wide open uh, drainage area. Is it an excision or, or not? And if it is excision, what happens when you run out of room and you can't put the two ends back together? <laughs> yeah, that's... <laughs> That, that, that's always a problem that you worry about. It, it looks like you're going to have a lot of freedom. And then as soon as you cut that EPJ, sometimes those ends uh, disappear from you uh, quite readily. But I do like to excise a little bit. Uh, I was always taught, you know, incise or spatulate and don't excise. I, I struggle with that a little bit because a lot of times that EPJ will be a little fibrotic not have great muscle backing, so it probably doesn't peristalse well. So I do like to excise at least a little bit of the true EPJ. Uh, and most of the time, if they have a generous renal pelvis, uh, you know, you can get those two ends to reach tension-free even after you spatulate the, the ureter. Um, now, if they don't have a generous pelvis, that's when I'd be less likely to excise. And if you do excise and let's say you cut out too much uh, and you do find yourself in that, you know, oh crap moment, I can't get these two ends back together. Uh, a few things you can do. I mean, one, I do try to usually minimize how much ureter I free up distally, because uh, I do worry about the blood supply of the ureter. But obviously if you can't reach, you can always free up the ureter more distally to straighten it out a little bit to get that to reach. And then just like that on the, on the top side, you can do a you know, free up the kidney. So you do basically a nephropexy to bring that kidney down. That usually does the trick. Uh, you know, if that doesn't, then you do start having to dig in your bags of trying to create a flap and rotate that pelvis down to bridge that gap. Uh, you know, another trick you can do sometimes if you're kind of in that borderline of is there tension on there or not, is you can, you know, try to tack the the ureter or the pelvis before you anastomose to the psoas muscle just to take tension off it as you sew that anastomosis and to keep tension off that. Uh, but I don't tend to like to do that much either. So I think it is something that comes with experience and kind of what you can gauge. But I think minimal excision is the key, but I do like to excise some. But again, don't excise much. Try to spatulate is, is the better answer. And Tara, you leave a stent, no stent. Uh, do you leave a nephrostomy tube? Do you leave a Foley catheter? Do you leave a drain? And what's your follow-up uh, imaging? Uh, so in terms of a, a stent, I always leave a stent. Uh, I leave it for about four weeks. 
the only time I leave in a frostomy tube is if, you know, it's already in place and if I'm concerned about the anastomosis. So for some of my redo, redo, redo pyeloplasties where the tissue is not so great, um, I'll, I'll leave the nephrostomy tube to drainage and then, you know, leave a drain in place and get some JP creatinines and, and just make sure that I don't have a leak before I start to cap and remove drains. I do tend to leave a JP drain overnight. My general practice is to do a void trial in the morning to check a JP creatinine around four hours, four to six hours after the Foley's been out. And then um, as long as the output isn't, isn't high and the, and the drain is serum, I remove the drain. Um, and so I, I do tend to leave a, a drain, um, but, but the, no, rarely do I have a nephrostomy tube that I leave in place. In general, I like to hold the stent in place and make sure that I pull the, pull the nephrostomy tube out while everything's under uh, direct visualization because I, I have seen um, the stent get pulled out and that's just such a pain when you have to go right back in and reposition a stent the next morning when the nephrostomy tube's pulled out. Um, so uh, I, I tend to always pull it uh, before I finish the anastomosis when I can hold, when I can have my, my robotic hand on that stent. Uh, in terms of follow-up, I generally see these patients for stent removal at four weeks, and then I see them about six weeks after that, so somewhere around the 12-week or three-month mark with a MAG3 LASIK renal scan. And then I see them again about six months after that, which is about nine months, and then the one-year mark after that, which is about 20, 21, 22 months post-op. And then if they are clear at that point, I discharge them if everything is stable and they're not having any symptoms, no pain, no infections, et cetera. Anyone doing post-op IVPs or CT urograms? I do not. <laughs> no, I, I've, I've not done IVPs. Well, I haven't done IVPs forever. Uh, I guess you can't get them anymore, but- uh, Wait, wait, and, uh, what, what's an IVP? <laughs> exactly, exactly. And, uh, and in the days when we did get IVPs, some of these, you know, post-surgical pyeloplasties did not look very pretty on IVPs, I got to tell you. Uh, so it's always nice to get a renal scan. It gives you better information and and it does look a little bit better to you and the patient. Um, and I think a CT urogram, same way, it's it's always a little tough to tell what the function or how good that drainage is in the renal pelvis uh, so on a I've CT gone, urogram. I've gone to getting both if, if insurance will pay for it because oftentimes the renal scan is not necessarily read well, or it may not necessarily be performed well. And I think that the CT urogram, you know, again, Dave, like you, I was born in the IVP era. And so I know how to read an IVP and I know, you know, what a CT urogram is kind of a, you know, it's a mimic of that, but I, the IVP or the CT urogram gives me some information that kind of supplements the, the MAG-3, if there's any question about the MAG-3. It's a little overkill. I think it may be more academic than it is uh, practical, but I, it does give me a little bit of a baseline. Should they come back with pain or, or you know, some kind of uh, problem afterwards? But <clears throat> all right. So Ravi, um, we'll kind of move down the the chain a little bit there of of, of the ureter. Um, <clears throat> what are your thoughts on ureterostomy versus uh, buckle graft? Uh, uh, that's the newest rage for for uh, ureteral reconstruction. Uh, we've done a, a bunch of them, and I'm actually pretty uh, pretty happy with them, although it's still early in its uh, tenure. I know you guys up there in, in New Jersey do a lot of them. Um, 
maybe just give us your thoughts on uh, what the indications are, when you might use them, how you uh, best use that uh, technique for the disease you're trying to fix. Sure, I think, um, so I think, you know, buccal mucosa ureoplasties are, are, are a great procedure. We've seen the data. Um, they really have long-term durability and um, you know, there's really nothing wrong with treating any part of the urinary tract in terms of the renal pelvis, the proximal, mid, or distal ureter. Um, you know, I think we talk, when we talk about ureterosomy, I think that's a great procedure as well, but those are generally going to be reserved for very small, strictured areas, typically in the proximal or mid ureter where you're not doing a pyeloplasty or reimplant. Um, but anytime you're considering doing a ureterosomy, you need to prepare that patient to do a buccal mucosa graft procedure. So in the instance that you find that there is actually more fibrosis in that area, or you may you know, inject some um, endocyanin green and do near infrared imaging to see if there's enough vascularity of the ureter and find out, wow, this ureter, while the stricture may not be that long, the ureter is not very well, well vascularized. In that instance, you need to be able to take some buccal mucosa. So I think anytime you're planning on doing a ureterosomy, at least 50% of the time, you're going to be surprised and say, wow, I need to cut more of the ureter than I expect. In which case, you're going to you know, cut that area and, and you know, spatulate two ends of the ureter, create a posterior plate, and then place the buccal mucosa on top of that. Um, the first time I did this procedure, I was um, you know, overwhelmed at how easy the procedure was. It looks terrible when you start placing the buccal mucosa um, on the flayed open ureter. Um, but then by the, by the time you're about three quarters of the way done, you say, wow, this actually looks like a ureter. It looks, it looks fantastic. But in the beginning, you always think, wow, this is not going to be long enough. It's not going to completely cover the ureter. It's not going to create this tension-free anastomosis, but it really does. And as I said, I, I think, you know, I've done, I, I would say in the last 10 years, I've done maybe three or four ureteral ureterostomies, but when I've wanted to do more of them, I found out that I really needed to do a buccal mucosa ureteroplasty because I needed to excise more than I thought. Tara? Agree, disagree? Wholeheartedly agree. I just did recently, a few weeks ago, a UU after having done a whole bunch of buckles in a row. And I was, I had to the patient consented for a buckle, but it was a very short structure. Um, I'll often at the beginning of these cases, drive a ureteroscope up to the, to the structure, which defines the distal extent of the structure for me. And if they have a two, a nephrostomy tube in place, I'll give some ICG through the nephrostomy tube as well so that I can really see intraop exactly the length and location of the structure. And, and I often find that compared to the retrograde, that structure is longer than I expected it to be. And so I, I really do consent all of these patients for, for buckles. And every time I do a UU, and I cut out that very short segment, I realized that getting it back together is, it always feels like it's under tension and I always wish I had just done a buckle to begin with, or at least that's how it feels. Um, so I, I agree with everything Ravi, uh, Ravi just mentioned. I think they're great cases. I think um, they're, they're definitely not any more technically difficult than what we'd be doing anyway for a UU. And I think they, they offer a lot of advantage um, in these cases. Dave, Tara touched on it a little bit there. Do you utilize ureteroscopy during these upper tract recons or is it uh, something you just can't do because of your positioning or 
Uh, how do you use ureteroscopy in, in assessing these intraoperatively? Yeah, no, I, I mean, I, I really do prefer to use ureteroscopy, especially for, you know, a stricture that's, I mean, a, for a pyloplasty, you don't need to, of course, but uh, for something you're thinking about doing a UU, I agree 100%. You can get fooled by what you think is healthy tissue, what you think is not healthy tissue, how long this thing is. Um, so, no, it's pretty easy. I mean, I do have them lateral on the bed, but, you know, I place a wire you know, beforehand, before we turn them. And then you can always use a dual lumen access sheet, throw a second wire up, throw a ureter scope over that very easily, male or female, and run a scope up there without much problem. Kind of see where that stricture is. You can use the Firefly on the robot. Uh, it lights up nicely and kind of shows you what is potentially good tissue and what is not good tissue. And, uh, you know, obviously when you're doing these procedures, most of these patients have not had a or I don't like to have them have a stent in. They usually have a nephrostomy tube and no stent. So you shouldn't be really able to get your ureteroscope past that strictured area. And then you can use ICG green, like Tara said, to, and Ravi said, to, to see the extent of the proximal end. Um, so yeah, I utilize ureteroscopy a lot in these cases. And in some cases I think, oh, I'm not gonna have to use it. I tend to be like, oh yeah, get the ureteroscope. I'm gonna use it in this case also. All right, good. Um, so let's go down to the, uh, the distal ureter. Um, Tara, what is your uh, go-to for ureteral reimplants with the robot? So for ureteral reimplants, um, I tend to do these uh, extravesically. I fill up the bladder, you know, obviously dissect out the ureter, um, make sure I can define um, the, the proximal extent of the structure, uh, and then you know make sure that I'm going to be able to reach if I need to. I do a start with a uh, psoas hitch and then do a bari if necessary. But in general, um, you know, we can we can generally predict that fair, with fair certainty. I think be, before starting, and a lot of those patients also have a nephrostomy tube in place, so it's not at all uncommon where I'll do the same thing and put ICG through the nephrostomy tube and clamp the tube. They get some nice hydroureter nephrosis right down to that area where you know that that proximal extent is and. Uh, you know, and then free up the contralateral bladder to give yourself the length that you need to make sure you can plug it back in and then in, in, in sort of a, uh, a fashion that does not have any tension. Um, and, and, and I, I tend to, um, I mean, that, that's really the summary in terms of um, re-implants. I always do a refluxing anastomosis, always place a stent. I, I place a stent generally, um, I generally I do it percutaneously. I usually use an angiocath, both uh, for pyeloplasties and for reimplants. Actually, I just use an angiocath, throw a wire up, and then um, in the setting of reimplant, just you know place it sort of in a retrograde fashion. But rather than messing with a cystoscope from below, I just I just do it um, through with an angiocath. Works well. And uh, and, and Ravi, what um, what kind of suture do you use? Do you interrupt it? Do you run it? Yeah, so I, I do this very similar to the way I do the pyloplasty procedures. I, I place one tacking suture, which is typically a uh, braided uh, absorbable suture, so a Vicro suture. I'll use like a 3.0 Vicro, and then I will run. Um, I'll try and do, um, uh, if I can, do a mucosal layer first. I will use a 4.0 monocryl, and then I'll use, um, and then I'll use a Vicro suture for the. Um, sort of the serosa and the mucosa, I'm sorry, the, tru the trusor and the serosa of the bladder. 
But in many cases, you cannot you know, get those two layer closures, but I also do them extravesically, just like Tara said. And if I use you know, a single suture, I'll typically use a, maybe a 3-0 in this case, because I wanna get a little bit more of that bladder and, and the ureter. And because you're spatulating and you're creating this non-refluxing anastomosis, um, you, know, you tend to be able to get, be able to get more tissue from for the bladder and the ureter both. So rather than using like the 4-0 that I typically use for the UPJ obstructions, I'll typically use maybe a 3-0 for um, this. And when I, if I have any extra bladder that's open, I'll typically use a 2-0 just to close that bladder if I need to. But everything that I try and do, I try to avoid doing Bowery flaps because it just adds time to the procedure. So if you can you know, minimize um, excising the ureter, you'll just do a straightforward reimplant. If I need to, I will mobilize. I will mobilize the bladder as much as I possibly can. You know, we have experience doing cystectomies as well, so I'll really mobilize that bladder and, and try and do so as hitch. And then, if necessary, finally move to that Bowery flap procedure. So I want to go back just for one quick second to the buckle mucosa, the buckle grafts. Uh, my male recon uh, partner here kind of talked me into using PDS for some of these because of their experience in the urethra and for urethral reconstruction. That's what they, at least that's what she uses um, uh, almost predominantly. Any experience with PDS? I mean, I, we've done three or four and I'm not sure I've seen necessarily a difference other than it's just a lot more difficult. So uh, because of the quality of the suture, any, any comments on PDS anywhere in the, in the um, reconstruction of the urinary tract? Well, you know, I think, you know, the PDS is uh, one of the biggest advantage I think of a PDS is that it, it's durability, it'll, it'll stay a lot longer, it won't get reabsorbed as quickly. So, but when you think about, you know, a vicral suture versus a monocryl suture, a monocryl suture has uh, more longevity than a vicral suture. So, you, you know, we're talking about taking stents out in about four weeks, vicral sutures should typically last six weeks or longer. So, to go for a PDS, I mean, I think you'd really want to do that if you want that durability and you want that suture to stay for three to six months. And I think that's the real advantage of PDS. But as you, as you mentioned, it's a little bit more challenging to sew with a PDS than it is with a with a. Some uh, might argue that that these sutures under the environment of constant, um, you know, uh, urine, you know, contact with urine that. Um, uh, you know, they, they may not hold up as well, or they may degrade a little quicker, um, et cetera. Um, but, you know, I, I probably don't want the suture staying around that long if it's in, in contact with urine anyway. So that just wanted to get your thoughts on that. So, Dave, um, you know, simple prostatectomy, robotic simple prostatectomies, are they dead? Are, are they alive? Are they going to compete with whole lip? Should they just go away? What, what's your what's your thought on robotic simple prostatectomies yeah that's always that's always a controversy but uh i i like them I, and i like to do them uh, and they're fun cases and i think it all depends on where you're at really uh, you know if you have a high volume hole up individual which i am not uh we do have uh one individual at our institution that does do hole ups but you know he is backed out for a year or backed up for a year and in, in case log uh and like at our VA, we don't have the capabilities for whole up or don't have the equipment for that, but we do have a robot there. So I think it it's still viable. It's still a great procedure. And I think it just depends kind of regionally if you're at a place that you have somebody that is trained in whole up and can do whole up 
you know, it's tough to argue against the outcomes of hole up and the recovery time and how easy that is on the patient. But if you don't have somebody who does hole lips, uh, or if there's just a volume issue, I think a robotic simple is a great procedure. Patients do great. Uh, again, it's it's a fun procedure. I, I really used to love the open simples also, but uh, that is gone uh, <laughs> as far as that goes. But robotic simple is uh, a great procedure. And I think it still deserves to be around. You know, it just got its own CPT code. So, or I mean, um, ICD-10 code. So you can uh, bill for it. Uh, but um, but yeah, I, I think it's still should be used or can be used. I think it's tough to compete with Holup though. And uh, Ravi, do you um, do you uh, you do transvesical? Uh, what percentage? Um, what ratio is uh, transvesical like suprapubic versus retro simple retropubic? So, you know, I think robotically is very, very easy to do a transvesical suprapubic prostatectomy. I, I, you know, I think when we were doing these open, I think retropubic was a nice uh, option rather than a suprapubic. But I think, you know, transvesically, it's so easy to open that bladder to get access to see where the ureal orifices are, shell out the prostate, you know, really bring the mucosa back. And when I do a, a running suture, I bring it all the way around. So I really create that funnel bladder neck afterwards, and then closing the bladder. Um, you know, what I think the, the interesting thing that um, David mentioned is that, you know, we love doing the operation. It's a fun operation to do, but, you know, the competitors are HOLEP, and there's also the transurethral water jet ablation procedure. So this is gaining a lot of traction, and for those that have to overcome the learning curve to do a whole lap procedure, the transurethral water jet procedure is really a nice operation to be able to tackle larger prostates. And you know, when you do a head-to-head -head comparison, clearly you're gonna get more tissue out with a whole lap or with a robotic simple prostatectomy. However, you know, is it you know, translatable? Can this be standardizable across you know, urologists have different skill sets. Um, what I wanted to ask both Tara and David is, so when you do robotic symbols, what's your size limit? Like, what are you, when I say size limit, your minimum size limit, what are the, what's the low end of robotic symbols that you're doing? Yeah, so um, Ravi, I can, I can tackle that first. Uh, my, the, the lowest that I would consider is 80 cc's, but in practice, here at my institution, we have a high volume HOLEP uh, partner who uh, is fantastic and is, is very busy. He and I uh, divide these cases, frankly. Uh, I think that you know, prostates that are anywhere between 80 and 150 grams are very well served with a HOLEP. I think that there's absolutely still a role for simple prostatectomy for glands that are you know, 150 to 500 cc's. So in general, I'm doing prostates that are 150 or more grams. What I'll say is that I've noticed even with having a partner who is very high volume, fellowship trained in HOLEP, uh, for me, if I do a 250 versus a 350 cc gland, it adds maybe 10, 15 minutes to my case. Whereas that adds much more time to a HOLEP because they still have to morselate. And it is a, definitely a more challenging HOLEP 
Whereas frankly, for me, I think sometimes the planes aren't quite as good in those 80 cc glands. And so there are times where I do 150 or 200 cc glands, and I find that those are actually easier cases than the handful of smaller glands that I've done. So I think that there's also definitely a role when there are tons of bladder stones, it takes us a combined 30 seconds to get all those stones out. You're already making a cystotomy, so I have these patients on and off the table in an hour, hour and a half, most of the time. They're very quick cases um, and I, my patient outcomes are great. So I, I too like to do these and I digressed a little bit, Ravi, from your question, but just also wanted to sort of comment on the on the back of what David said in, in terms of the, the sort of ongoing utility for simple, um, knowing that HOLEP is a fantastic procedure with great outcomes, but I, I believe there's still a role. And I'll, last, lastly, I'll just say I do have a subset of patients who see our partners here for HOLEP, but they're just not willing to take on the risk of that transient stress urinary incontinence that happens. And I really see almost none of that with simple prostatectomy. So I do have a small subset of patients who come to me for simple because they're just really concerned about that transient stress urinary incontinence that can happen with HOLEP. Yeah, I agree with you. I We've done some really large glands, and I will tell you that that um, we end up we end up probably not doing a full enucleation just because they're so big, and you keep pulling it out, and you keep pulling it out, and we eventually just kind of cut our losses. And you're like, oh my god, you know, are we gonna have to turp them later? Are we gonna have to do something later? And uh, just just removing half of the 300 gram gland seems to make some of these patients really pretty happy. So. Um, well, we have just a couple minutes, and I want to follow up with, uh, I hope, just a, a brief topic. Um, Ravi, what is the role currently for robotic stone surgery? Well, I'm glad you asked me about that, because we just did a robotic pyelolithotomy um, about probably four weeks ago on a stone that was at least three centimeters, actually branching into mid and lower calyces. And, um, you know, the reason why we did this was this patient had very thin renal parenchyma, but had adequate renal function um, on a renal scan, but we were afraid to cause more damage or tearing of the renal parenchyma by doing a percutaneous nephrolithotomy. So I think that's a really good indication when you have a patient who has some renal function that's above your cutoff, and my cutoff is, you know, about approximately 20% or so, but you don't want to cause more damage to the parenchyma. I think a robotic pyelolithotomy is a fantastic procedure. Now, we just presented a case uh, uh, yesterday morning of a patient who had a 1.6-centimeter proximal impacted ureteral stone who underwent a ureteroscopy, ended up with a huge um, perinephric hematoma that you know caused a multiple-day hospital stay. You know, and someone mentioned, why not just do a robotic ureteral lithotomy? I mean, that would have been a probably a 30-minute case, just making a small incision into that ureter, plucking that stone out, putting a few sutures in and putting a stent in. So, you know, I, I do think that there is a role um, in limited circumstances because the great ureteroscopist and endourologist who can do things percutaneously or um, ureteroscopically can treat stones very well. But at the same time, I think there are some indications where we can use a robot to do these procedures in the same amount of time with you know maybe same day surgery or just an overnight stay. Dave? Yeah, I mean I would say it's it's pretty limited, but I agree with Ravi. Uh, there are instances when it's nice to go in there and and uh, you know make an incision and kind of pull the stone out. 
Uh, obviously, if you're going to do a pyloplasty and they have stones, you can do a pylothotomy at the same time. That's one of the easiest indications for robotic stone surgery. I don't think there's any reason to, you know, need to perk them first or do your ureteroscopy first to try to clear those stones. You're going to be there. You can open up the pelvis, get those stones out very easily. Uh, and then, I mean, I do worry you get these two centimeter distal ureteral stones. The kidney still works. It's a little odd to understand how they developed a, a two centimeter stone in their distal ureter. But you go up there and try to do that ureteroscopically. It's a long time, a lot of energy a lot of potential ureteral damage, which may already be there from the impacted stone. But if it's a huge stone, you can go make an incision, pull that stone out intact. I think you may preserve the mucosa a little bit better than if you're trying to laser that and not leave any little fragments that could cause a stone granuloma in the future. Uh, so that's a nice indication for the procedure. And then the only other one I'd, I'd end with is if they have a calocele diverticulum with a stone in it, symptomatic or causing recurrent infections, and that's really more of a partial nephrectomy, but uh, you can go in there and you just excise that whole diverticulum, excise the stone, do a partial nephrectomy, and you don't need to worry about that stone recurring or having problems in the future. Especially if they're anterior. Yes. Yeah. Tara, any uh, other additions for robotics in stones? No, no. I have a series of, of uh, robotic uh, nephrolithotomies. Usually the indication that uh, David just described with a bunch of stone and a calocele tick. Um, I've had really good success. <clears throat> you think just to add, you'd have to just be really careful to make sure that you find the opening of that infundibulum and uh, make sure it's sealed and make sure you don't leave any urothelium behind. And uh, as long as you follow those principles, those patients do really well. So, um, and, I, and you can even at times do them uh, off clamp. Uh, you, you don't really need to even necessarily clamp the kidney depending on, normally the am amount of parenchyma right above those ticks is very minimal. So you can kind of come right through it. You don't even really necessarily need to clamp. So patients do really well. We have uh, three or four pelvic kidneys actually who have pretty big stones and we've done uh, robotic, you know, it's, can't really perk those. Uh, ureteroscopy can be pretty challenging. And so we actually have done robotic uh, stone surgeries on pelvic kidneys um, uh, several times. So that would be another indication. Well, look, I, I sincerely appreciate your expertise. Um, that will conclude our, our uh, addition for um, benign robotic procedures. Um, thank you very much for your expertise, Dr. Munver, Morgan, and Duchesne. Uh, we really appreciate it. And on behalf of the Endo Society, Wolf, and the Journal of Endourology, uh, we look forward to seeing you uh, in person soon. Thanks very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Brad. On behalf of uh, Richard Wolf Medical, the Journal of Endourology, and the Endourological Society, I thank you for listening today and hope you can tune into the next podcast. <laughs>